HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. From the small corner store to giant mega chains, the supermarket is an icon of post-war America. Today, we're going to find out how they came about, and more importantly, why, on A Taste of the Past. Sometimes a supermarket is just a supermarket, a way of bringing food to urban and suburban societies. But when Tracy Deutsch puts her magnifying glass on it, a supermarket becomes a microcosm of consumer culture, capitalism, and politics woven into a narrative of gender, race, and class issues. To Dr. Deutsch, the why in the history of supermarkets is as important as the when and the how. Tracy Deutsch is an associate professor of history at the University of Minnesota, and she's focused much of her studies on women and capitalism. Her first book, Building a Housewife's Paradise, Gender, Politics, and American Grocery Stores in the 20th Century, was named the best book of 2010 by the Association for the Study of Food and Society. She's received fellowships from the National Museum of American History at the Smithsonian, and the Schlesinger Library at Harvard University. In, in her study of history about the supermarkets, uh, Tracy Deutsch has traced the charged story, as she calls it, of the origins of contemporary food distribution. Tracy, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Uh, you know, I in reading, well, I listened to one of your lectures, first of all, which I absolutely um, loved and found oh, it so enlightening. And and looking through your book and um, some of your uh, the comments about your studies, I found it very interesting how you weave in all these different social issues. But just to bring us up to speed, tell us a little bit about how grocery shopping worked in the past and why it changed. Sure. Um, I'll try to do that in a sentence. So, <laughs> oh, you can um, talk longer than that. <laughs> yeah. Um, grocery stores... Uh, were part of a very complicated retail landscape. 
um, that distributed food to people in urban areas. Um, I should say that in rural areas, food was distributed differently because obviously people could garden more easily and had access to their own food. But even their stores had a role. Um, but they weren't the only ways that people got food, and I think we sometimes forget that. Um, there were peddlers who were very important in food distribution, particularly in cities, and also um, public markets, sort of like the farmer's markets we have now, mm-hmm. only often if, in cities, often much larger, um, and gardens. Even in the most crowded cities, many families continued to garden or to barter with neighbors who did garden, so they got food that way, too. So even though I studied stores, and I think they're very important, one thing I always emphasize is that we need to understand early grocery stores as um, sort of one way of getting food, but, but not the dominant, not the only way of getting food for urban residents mm-hmm. in particular. Um, even these stores were um, different from the, the, our sort of stereotype of supermarkets now. Um, they were very small physically. Um, the, the, the example I always give is that the first, some of the first designs for chain grocery stores um, had the store size at 600 square feet. Hmm, not very large. Not very large. Not when you consider the size of supermarkets now. Um, <laughs> and they served... Uh, relatively few customers. They might serve anywhere from like 50 to 100 people in a day. So more of a neighborhood um, right. superette, right? Right. And they were literally corner stores, which meant that there was, there was one on every corner. Mm. <laughs> so although they were small, there were many, many more stores, generally within walking distance of people's homes. Um. So in Chicago, which is the place I studied most closely, just to give an example of this, in 1948 in Chicago, there were 10,000 stores that identified primarily as grocery stores. Wow. Um, there were 300,000 across the country. Hmm. And, and there's a fraction of that now. Right, exactly. Um, consolidation, right, into these, into these big supermarkets, right. as we call them. Right. Well, right. so then when did the first... Uh, official supermarket come about, and what was it? Well, this is a matter of some debate among <laughs> historians. Lots of stores have claimed this title. Um, and it's, so the short answer to your question is that most people would say the first supermarket um, opened on the East Coast. Um, it was uh, one of the Big Bear stores. Um, Big Bear is still a name that's, that will be familiar to some folks on the East Coast. Um, and that opened, I believe, in 1930. Um, but it was part of a larger shift and sort of experimentation in um, the way that in among grocery retailers. So at around that time, partly because of the Depression and a new um, sort of price consciousness among people, and um, partly because large spaces were opening up that could accommodate large grocery stores. Um, Factories went out of business. Auto dealerships went out of business. Those spaces were empty. Lots of grocers started to experiment with um, selling in a different format. But these early supermarkets were still different from the kinds we have now. Hmm. Um, Now, I thought Piggly Wiggly was the first supermarket. What was the history there? Some people would argue that. Um, Typically, I, I don't... I personally don't put that forward as the very first because Piggly Wiggly stores 
Um, we're among the first to feature self-service. So they were among the first stores where people would get food themselves. But they weren't um, nearly as large as supermarkets. And we're talking again um, the early part of the 20th century. The very 1920s, early part of the yeah. 20th century, yeah. So the first supermarkets opened um, 1929, 1930, 1931. Piggly Wiggly predates that. Hmm. Um, they were around much earlier, and they were important pioneers in terms of um, self-service and very heavily leaning on standardization. So they sold the same goods in their stores and sort of had them stocked in similar ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so formats that eventually grocer supermarkets adopted were pioneered by Piggly Wiggly stores. But Piggly Wiggly stores were still really functioning like all the early chain stores. They functioned as these small neighborhood stores um, that might serve more people than a typical mom and pop, but still were not meant to occupy a huge amount of space space and sell huge varieties of goods. Mm -hmm. Now, we've had a discussion on this show before talking about urban provisioning and the difficulties, and we're talking 18th century and and early 19th century, about the difficulties in bringing food to urban areas. Um, So now all of a sudden we see this shift and this change. And you argue in some of your writings that the supermarket emerged not from a straightforward consumer demand for low prices and need for food being brought to them, but more through some other reasonings, uh, like government regulations? Um, Partly about regulations, yes. Um, So let me back up a second and say that the the reason I I came to that conclusion was because the very first supermarkets, the ones that we talked about, um, did feature super low prices. Um, That was their kind of MO. That was what gave them their name. Mm -hmm. And they were hugely popular. And then they all, um, many of them, went out of business. <laughs> hmm. Because if you cut your prices too low, you can't stay in business no matter how, many, how much you sell. You have to sell a lot of food. <laughs> well, and e- if you sell huge amounts of food and it's all below cost, you're still going to go out of business. Hmm. And that was a problem that supermarkets and even some chain stores ran into, some of these smaller chain stores ran into. Um, in fact... The first supermarkets were largely shunned by large, uh, sort of established chain store companies. A&P was very late in building supermarkets. Um, the the um, operator of one of the first supermarkets, um, King Cullen, was an ex-Kroger executive who hmm. left hmm. because Kroger wasn't going to open a supermarket, and he thought it was the way to go. Interesting. Well, so, I mean, yeah, it- so they were very different. And then, over time... Um, these lar- very large sort of unwieldy stores that really emphasized price went out of business, not entirely, but largely. And chain store firms began to convert their stores to, the, to a larger format, still not as large as like Super Target or Walmart or even these first generation of supermarkets, but, um, but larger than they had been. Mm-hmm. Well, now, these changes um, were were really aimed at women, obviously, mm-hmm. the women yeah. being the homemakers and, and the ones doing the shopping and bringing the food in, uh, as you say, building a housewife's paradise. Well, right, I, right. I, and I, that's a quote, I should say. Okay. And who was that attributed to, the, the housewife's um, paradise? He was the, a member of the board of directors of the National Tea Company, which was a big grocery store chain in Chicago. Hmm. And he, when he was starting to convert his stores um, to a slightly larger format, he said that they were building a housewife's paradise. Oh, my. <laughs> yeah. 
And but it wasn't so they were really aiming it towards women. What in and how did this affect how business was established? Um, oh, you mean that they were trying to aim it towards women? Right. Um, you know, it's interesting. I'm going to answer that in two ways. Uh, one thing that they did was to uh, try and they made some accommodations to what they imagined women wanted. So one thing that, in fact, the National Tea Company did when they built their Housewives Paradise was he said that they built the shelves lower so that women could reach them. Hmm. Um, sometimes they said that they were the, the predominant theme in grocers as they were transitioning was that they were making their stores um, super clean um, and fair and sort of uh, decorating them, making yes. them more aesthetically pleasing. Right, bright colors. I mean, all you know when you look at some of the vintage photos, there was yes. all these bright, colorful displays and ads. Bright, colorful displays, and often actually fairly elaborate interiors, especially for grocery stores of the time. So some of these, like if you look at sort of late '30s and '40s, and especially the '50s, supermarket interiors were often um, heavily. Um, decorated or, you know, heavily designed, I would say. Um, public supermarkets featured marble floors in parts of their stores. Hmm. Um, and they often had, this was when they started to pipe in music and they paid a lot of attention to lighting um, and the colors of the walls, um, the design of the, the fonts that they used in their signage, all of that. Um, that was one of the ways that they said they were appealing to women and making shopping fun. It was interestingly, even though they also um, talked about price, that was interestingly not the thing that grocers would have said they were doing just to attract women. Well, and then, of course, tied into that, as we all know it still is, are the ads and coupons for discounts in many of the women's magazines, and then that would drive business to the stores too. So again, that's you know targeting the women, the the woman consumer. Yeah, exactly. Supermarkets and uh, coupons, and those got more elaborate over time. I don't know if your um, listeners will remember trading stamps. Mm, I do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully, there are a few others out there. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed, I mean that was that was an enticement to uh, you know to spend and buy, and then in the end, you get trade in your stamps and get a prize. You know exactly. Yeah, and I think for a lot of people, it was an important um, strategy for right. accumulating stuff you wanted. Right. Well, when I mean, then there was this tremendously rapid growth in by the mid twentieth century, as you mentioned, um, in numbers of stores. What about? I mean, were these primarily successful? And what about the the annual sales of these stores? Yeah. So there was. Let me just say, there was a tremendous growth in the number of supermarkets. Other kinds of stores declined over time. So the total number of grocery stores, it's counterintuitive, but the total number of grocery stores went down hmm. because more stores, there were fewer stores, but they were larger. And were they primarily chains? Um, they were very often, if not owned by a chain, they were parts of what people called voluntary chains. Um, so they tried to standardize, even mom and pops tried, sort of strove for like similar look to their stores or being able to buy from the same wholesaler and sell the same private labels. Things got more standardized, mm-hmm. in, certainly in people's experience of shopping. Um, but to answer the second part of your question, 
they, um, they, the supermarkets in the 50s, the 40s and 50s, were hugely successful, especially these standardized, um, very streamlined, very sort of highly designed, fancy supermarkets. And to the tune of, of um, you know, millions of dollars? Or? Oh, yes. <laughs> okay. I, 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 and I teased that out because I think you had uh, mentioned somewhere that it was over a billion dollars in sales by the, yeah. by the mid-20th century. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, was, it was, that sector was over a billion dollars in sales. And it was, for most of the 20th century, grocery stores were um, the largest, one of the largest retail sectors. Hmm. Yeah, well, everybody needs to eat, right? Everybody needs exactly. food. Um, exactly. You you mentioned that um, that the supermarkets emerged also, and I just touched on the government regulations, and but also, um, well, retailers' concerns for financial success. We just talked about that, Con- and control of the shop floor. What? Right. Talk about that. Sure. So, one perennial challenge for grocers was. Um, making women shoppers behave the way grocers thought women shoppers ought to behave, <laughs> if I can say that typically. Um, so when I said that grocers, some of the accommodations they said they were making for women involved their own ideas about what women should want, right? Love it when they tell us what we want, right? <laughs> right, you know, that women wanted, and, and, I'm, and certainly many women did want those things. I wouldn't deny that. But women also wanted other things. Like they wanted to be able to um, get help reaching things on the shelf they couldn't reach or to get food delivered when it was hard to get it delivered or to stop in the aisle and chat with a friend that they ran into in the store or to, you know, you can go down the list, right? You can imagine all the things people want from stores. And um, some of those things were problems for stores that were emphasizing standardization and you know, and women and customers getting things themselves off the shelf and self-help. So um, the more that a grocer could sort of control what happened in the space of the store, the more predictable selling was going to become, the easier it was to standardize, and the easier it was to turn a profit in this new model of food selling. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, control over the shop floor had been... Um, something that all grocers and I think probably most retailers worried about for forever. It wasn't a new issue, but it was particularly acute for stores that were emphasizing um, standardization and streamlining because women could disrupt those ambitions. Hmm, interesting. Um, we are going to talk, come take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about some of the issues, the other issues surrounding supermarkets and not in the least, politics. So stay sure. tuned when we come back. You're listening to Favorite Flower by Pamela Royal on the Heritage Radio Network.org. Stay tuned for more from A Taste of the Past. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, 
we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Kane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Kane5.com. We're back on A Taste of the Past, and we're talking about supermarkets. I'm talking with Tracy Deutsch, and we just had heard an ad about, you know, selecting particular, be careful of what you select and, and appreciate everything you buy, and, and basically we're talking about supporting small producers and buying locally, but we're talking about supermarkets, so it seems like whatever goes around comes around, and <laughs> we are starting back at the beginning again, and Tracy, we... Um, I mean, you described how uh, these mega stores were building a model that would appeal primarily to women, or as you mentioned, a woman haunted business. Well, mm-hmm. um, but then again, there were some political um, problems surrounding food re- retail, and I'm sure that would have something to do with merchandising and cost. Yes, it did have something to do with those things, um, and. You can tell me if you're thinking of something in specific, but, you know, one thing people forget is that grocery stores have always been places where important laws were enforced. They were in, so they're important sites of governance, and that, a lot of that has to do with health regulations, food regulations. Um, earlier, I'm sure you talked about this on your other show, in the 18th and 19th century, prices were often regulated by cities of certain necessities, and that all has to get enforced at the point of purchase. Mm-hmm. So stores have always been places where laws mattered and shaped what happened. Um, but in the teens and 20s and 30s, and especially the 40s, more, grocers became responsible in some ways for administering more laws. Um, some of this had to do with wartime rationing and price control. Um, grocers collected, I won't do the whole history, but grocers had to collect ration points from customers um, for rationed goods. Mm-hmm. And then they, you know, those points allowed grocers to order more. So it was really sort of the grocery stores were kind of the choke point where those wartime, really important wartime economic policies were administered in, a, in an everyday way. Um, they also were places in many states where the sales tax was collected. So they were important to, increasingly important to state government's revenue. Um, and all of this, one thing that really struck me when I was doing research for the book was how much talk about um, laws and regulations filled the trade journals. Um, grocers thought about these things a lot, and it turned out that it was much easier for, not, for standardized chain stores to enforce and administer these laws than very small mom-and-pop stores. Hmm. Um, partly that was because um, large operations could afford to have staff that understood the regulations and could keep the records necessary for some of them. Um, partly it was because it was easier to enforce laws on people you didn't have that kind of tight personal connection to. What about the provisioning of these huge stores? I mean, where were they buying their goods from and how did that affect... Uh, the you know the quality and uh, and one versus another and, and 
did you go down that line? You know, I didn't look a whole lot at their supplies, but I can tell you that um, large, by the post-World War II period, um, especially large, these large chain stores and their supermarkets often controlled as much as they could their own supplies. So they had um, warehouses that they controlled. Some, in some cases, they even owned some farms hmm. in various parts of the country. Um, they tried to, what we call, vertically integrate. Um, so they tried to control things on the supply end as much as they could themselves. Um, and um, other grocers worked through a very complicated network of wholesalers, which itself fell on hard times in the post-war period. And that was another reason that... Um, smaller independent stores ran into trouble. Well, that brings me to another point that I I wanted you to describe. And um, you uh, talked about a term, uh, predictable consumption. What what is meant about, what do you mean about that and how, uh, and about the systems that that require this predictability? Um, So the more, the, the larger your operation is, the more you're depending on this sort of razor thin margin and moving large quantities of goods. Right? So you sell a lot of goods at relatively low profit, but you make it up because in volume. Um, the more important it is that you can predict how much you're going to sell because the costs involved are so much higher. The scale of operations is so huge. Um, so having predictable sales becomes increasingly important to these larger stores that are also trying to predict out into the future as they control their own supplies. Mm-hmm. They order. Right. Um, in your discussion of um, of the reasons for supermarkets and then then issues that ensued, you mentioned gender, class, and race. Now, class or gender, we've talked about somewhat. Mm-hmm. Issues of class and race. How do those come in? Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, well, not surprisingly, they overlap to some extent. Um, so these fancier stores that were built um, in the 40s, the late 30s and the 40s, um, often were not in urban centers. They were on the fringes of cities or in suburbs, and they were meant to appeal to an upper-middle-class audience. Um, so mass consumption, what we think of as mass consumption, um, often was most predominant and easiest to administer in middle-class and upper-middle-class neighborhoods. And it became a kind of being able to shop in supermarkets um, became a sign of class. Hmm. Yeah, you have a which is a, a, sort of a, the opposite now, right? right? Right, and you have this. You had at that time then sort of a homogeneous group to whom you know you would appeal. Right, I imagine. or Made at least it easier a group that you could treat in a relatively homogeneous way. Right, it, so you know, there was that predictability. We don't again. know right. who shopped in stores. It was a much more diverse group then, and you know, then it would then the rhetoric makes it sound like. Um, but, yeah, you could treat it in a relatively standardized and relatively predictable way. They had The important thing was that they had the resources to buy in large quantities, to get themselves to and from the store, and to buy relatively the same amount over time because they had relatively stable incomes. Mm. All of that is harder in working class and poor neighborhoods. Well, so these people living in more condensed urban environments still had to rely upon whatever corner stores were left, were existing. Right, and there were some chain stores in urban, you know, in dense urban areas, um, but but generally fewer and generally smaller, and that became increasingly difficult and a site of tension for grocers 
by the 60s and 70s. Um, what's interesting to me is that they often, they, there'd um, be all kinds of investigations about prices in poor neighborhoods as opposed to wealthier ones. And whereas that had, you know, that had always been a problem, um, early in the 20th century, grocers would respond by trying to sort of accommodate the people who lived in the neighborhood. Or cities would try and make sure food was distributed in some way throughout the city. By the mid and late 20th century, grocers frequently just explained that the problem was simply that poor people lived in the wrong place. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, and I'm not being too, I'm not generalizing too dramatically in that. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that poor people just didn't understand the way mass retailing worked. Um, and if they understood it, they would understand why they were going to pay more in their neighborhood. Right. Well, and it's, you know, and there are still, there are food deserts today where, you know, where large or quality supermarkets just don't exist, you know, in, in many urban areas. Um, right. Or, right. or fresh food, or fresh food and there markets. Also, yeah. I think increasingly an assumption that, that those, the existence of those stores is a marker of how people get their food. And supermarkets became so dominant, I think, that um, we use them even as an indicator of like, of food availability. Um, so one interesting thing about, I mentioned that because one interesting thing about food deserts now is that people are finding that in poor and working class neighborhoods, there might not be any supermarkets, but it's true that that's a format that's difficult because that kind of predictability is harder when income is unpredictable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and people often get to get their food through small neighborhood stores, through, through gardening, through a whole host of ways that we don't, you know, aren't easily studied. Um, but we think of supermarkets as so important that we, we often, and I do this too, use them as a key to indicate what food's available at all. Right. And it's like, you know, getting cable television and there's all those channels, but not right. really anything you Sometimes, want. You go yeah. in some of these supermarkets and there are aisles and aisles of food, but nothing that you really need or want to buy. Yeah. And here we are going full circle, as I said uh, at the break, that now we're looking to go more to wanting smaller markets and local provisions and and uh, green grocers and going back to the to the smaller more um, I guess fresh and and uh, local driven uh, provisioning and I don't know where that's going to leave supermarkets I mean they still play an important role there's no question about it but it is an interesting background and I I thank you for for doing the studies in it and and bringing it to light because I, things that I hadn't really given much thought to you really brought to life in this and the fact that it's a housewife's paradise mm, ah, well <laughs> That can be argued. Right, yeah. <laughs> right. But thank you, Tracy, very much. Tracy Deutsch, um, and if you want to read more about it, she does have a book out called Building a Housewife's Paradise, Gender Politics and American Grocery Stores in the 20th Century. Thank you so much, Tracy, and thank you for listening. This has been A Taste of the Past. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. 
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.